0: Good day, Western Standard viewers. I'm Nigel Hannaford, opinion editor here at the Western Standard, an online publication. I have with me today, Dr. Mark Milkey, who is the author of the 1867 project, just published, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Canceled. Dr. Milkey is president of the Aristotle Foundation he is also president of the Winston Churchill Society here in Calgary and he is the author of six books formerly one which is very much on the public mind at the moment the victim cult which he examines some of the trends in society that make life a little more difficult for all of us but looking back over his history i've got this whole bookshelf of, uh, of Dr Milky's books there's something about this which seems like it's a, a summation of a strain of thought that's been going on for more than 20 years. Why did you write this book at this time, Mark?
1: Nigel, thanks for having me on. Um, well, I, I think what's happening today, the best way to understand it, is when you hear people that wanna cancel Canada, sometimes literally, right? They think Canada is, is a genocidal nation state. Um, that somehow shouldn't be you know, cherished. Well, they're wrong on the first, and they're wrong on the second. And what's happening these days is akin to people who want to take down an oak tree. I love trees. One of my favorite trees is an oak tree. Why? Because it's massive. It has a great canopy. It shelters people below it. My car has been hit by hail a number of times. If I'd been under an oak tree in the canopy, it probably would have been sheltered from the hail. Countries are like that. Right? It takes a long time to build something successful. And in the Anglosphere, anyway, and increasingly other countries around the world that value freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, capitalism, that sort of thing, uh, countries do take time to develop. So like, like an acorn that becomes an, ac- an oak tree, <clears throat> what do you do as it grows? Well, you make sure there's uh, sunshine, which is kind of like freedom um, you know, of expression. You need water and nutrients um, you know, to help the tree along. Um, that's, you know, replenishing, uh, replenishes the tree. And it's the same thing with countries, right? You need freedom of expression. You need nutrients for the country's ideas. You also need resistance. Um, You know, wind can help an oak tree, you know, cement itself um, in the ground, anchor itself. Well, we have people today, though, that will spot in history a limb on the oak tree and say, well, that was, you know, it was a bad limb. We should take down the entire tree. No. The fact that in Canada, 1867 or 1920, it wasn't perfect and they spot something bad in our history doesn't mean you take down the project that was Canada then or now. So the problem today is we have people, though, that simplistically think that uh, if something bad happened in history, Canada has no credibility uh, and that somehow we should, what, start from year zero? Uh, that's That's very silly. It's also very dangerous. But that's the best way to explain it, is that some Canadians, not a majority... Uh, but they're influencing, I think, a, a great chunk of the population. Think Canada isn't worth cherishing. So myself and nineteen other authors in the eighteen sixty seven project uh, disagree and say no. Let's let's take another look at Canada in history and now, and how can we renew this wonderful country that we have uh, going forward? So Mark, in your
0: book, you have got several chapters which I think are going to really surprise people because you're. Bucking the mainstream consensus. You are, for example, saying that um, Canada is not a systematically racist country. All right, that goes goes very much against the the progressive narrative. Uh, Controversially, you're saying that the British Empire was a good thing. I personally see no reason to dispute that, but others do. And then, of course, um, you're saying, uh, and I think this one must be generating a lot of heat for you, that John A. MacDonald, he whose statue is routinely pulled down as a protest, actually saved more indigenous lives than any other prime minister. Where do you get that from?
1: Well, we've got some very excellent authors in the 1867 project, right? So there's 19 other authors. Um, and the authors you just mentioned now do a really great job of unpacking some of these modern-day claims, what, which they would argue are false. And most some Canadians, most Canadians, I think, might, have a sense that they're not getting the full history or full explanation of, of something. Um, so what these authors do in the 1867 project is take these claims and unpack them. So, Matthew Lau on systemic racism. We hear that a lot these days, that Canada is an institutionally racist country. First of all, let's define that term. Systemic racism, institutional racism, a century ago in San Francisco looked like this. Whites wouldn't allow those of Chinese origin to enter their hospitals. The Chinese of San Francisco had to build their own hospital because the whites wouldn't let them in. That's institutional systemic racism. If you don't allow Jews into university, or at least not to the proportion that they might enter based on test scores, that was institutional racism, um, so so on and so forth. But that's been illegal in Canada since at least the 1950s. Ontario passed laws against discriminating based on race and gender and ethnicity and hiring and accommodation in 1951, 1952. So let's not confuse what is institutional systemic prejudice um, then, with the fact you can meet a bigot today, but you know, a bigot around, you, you meet a bigot on the street, that doesn't mean Canada is an institutionally racist society. So Matthew Lau unpacks that a bit, but he also goes into income statistics. So, for example, um, when, you, when you compare incomes of whether it's males or females, what you find for, mostly is that if your ancestry is East Asian, for example, you're at the top of the income heap, heap right? Guys with pale faces like you and me are in the middle. And um, if, you know... You need to work harder, Mark. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, if, if you're of, you know, some other varieties of, of the rainbow, you know, you'll come under, under the middle, right? But um, what Matthew does is he explains some things. If, for example, you're a Taiwanese-Canadian... Uh, you know, or Korean or Japanese, first of all, your average age is older, we make more money when we're older, so that skews the statistics also. Uh, And if you're younger, say, as an Indigenous person, the average, you know, Indigenous population is much younger than, say, a Japanese Canadian. So again, those skew the income statistics, which means what? Well, you can't blame stuff on racism that has to do with other factors. Um, Taiwanese Canadians are among the most highly educated Canadians. The more educated you are, the more money you make. That's why you're on top of the income heap. So what Matthew Lau tries to do is unpack that. He does actually find systemic racism, but it's the kind of reverse racism today, which is justified by social justice, justice activists, and they no longer look at the individual like Martin Luther King in character and merit. They look at you as part of a collective that you know presumably you you know your ancestors benefited from something 100 years ago. So Matthew Lau unpacks that.
0: Now Matthew is with the. Fraser Institute, is he not? Well, he's a
1: scholar there, and he's also, uh, he writes in the Financial Post every, every, uh, yes. every week. Uh, Greg Piasatsky and Johnny McDonald. Macdonald. What, Greg, citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario, has an indigenous, other indigenous ancestry, uh, French ancestry as well, Acadian ancestry. Greg Piasatsky, he's a Toronto lawyer, who writes that Johnny McDonald Macdonald saved more indigenous lives than any other Prime Minister. How does Greg come to this conclusion? Well, he comes to it honestly. He says, examine the record examine what Johnny McDonald did. So for example, McDonald along with, you know, other colonials and British of the era favored treaties. Why? They, they didn't want the Canadian West settled before treaties were in place because they didn't want to see what happened south of the border where there were where there were Indian wars and indigenous folks in the United States suffered greatly because settlers just came, didn't do treaties, just stole land and and murdered, in some cases, entire tribes. So John A. MacDonald was conscious of that as was the colonial government of the day pre and post Confederation. So that's one thing. The Northwest Mounted Police, its creation. Part of the reason for its creation was to make sure the rule of law and order in the Canadian West existed. And again, this is a British inheritance, right? That we're not going to take territory without treaties, you know, and and the Royal Proclamation of 1763 is an example of that thinking. Um, So Johnny MacDonald saved Indigenous lives because he wanted the rule of law. He wanted treaties. He wanted to defend the first settlers, so to speak, from later settlers. And there are reasons for that. So also smallpox epidemic much of the indigenous population across Canada was was, um, inoculated against the smallpox virus. That's a McDonald's success as as well as the Liberal government before him. So, And then lastly, perhaps the most contentious part of this, is um, famine relief on the prairies that John A. MacDonald instituted. Uh, There's a phrase from a critic of McDonald, and and Greg Piasatsky in this chapter references the book, where McDonald talks about um, half rations uh, for, for natives in Canada. That was a reference to those off-reserve. There was a deal um, under a treaty. The federal government was obliged rightly to you know, provide rations on reserves as the buffalo were disappearing. And they did, full rations. But MacDonald gets into trouble because he's battling the liberal opposition in Parliament, which, doesn't, which wants much less spent on indigenous Canadians of the day saying, why are you spending all this money on Indians? This is the liberal opposition, you know, vis-a-vis McDonald. McDonald defends his decision, says, no, we have to feed people. Now we're going to provide half rations off reserve, but full rations on reserve because we're encouraging them to go to reserve. That's part of the treaty deals. Now that sounds harsh, and it was harsh. These days we would just say, forget the deal, forget the treaties, just feed people wherever they are with full rations. So McDonald can be criticized there. But what Greg tries to do, and the other authors in the 1867 project do, is provide <clears throat> context, history, what was happening at the time. So Greg concludes, and again, you're right, it's probably the most controversial chapter for some, is that John A. MacDonald um, actually was uh, a net benefit to indigenous peoples, even though that's not how it's seen today, but as Greg writes in his chapter, you know, Johnny McDonald hasn't changed. the history of Johnny McDonald hasn't changed, but the perception of him has, uh, and that's because Canadians no longer know their own history.
0: I think we've actually had some of Greg's articles in mm-hmm. the Western Standard in past months, so it's uh, pleased to see his name in the mm-hmm. book here. And uh, I, you know I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk about the British Empire another time, but why do some? I don't think it's everybody by any means, but why do some Canadians think canceled, that Canada should be cancelled and, and not celebrated? I mm-hmm. see a lot
1: to celebrate here. Why should we be ashamed of our past? Well, we might have to bring in the British Empire to explain that. Well, then let's... So again, there's a simplistic view of history that I think people have. But the British Empire, for example, and you know this, um, was the empire that abolished slavery around the world or fought, you know, fought slavery around the world. Uh, you know, and, and in most cases was able to abolish it in any territories they controlled. Why do people think Canada needs to be called uh, cancelled today? I think in part there, there's a couple of things going on there. Number one, we have utopians today that look to the past and go well it wasn't perfect, therefore we can't respect it or we can't celebrate it. That to me is uh, short-sighted. Um, and what I mean by utopians though is if you think about the 20th century, the main utopian movement was Marxism. And Marxists you know, we're wrong about pretty much everything the economy, human behavior, so on and so forth. But I suppose at least a Marxist could argue their utopia they were going to create was in the future. We have people today that look back in history, which by definition is closed, you can't change it, it's done, mm-hmm. and think it should have been perfect, even though. History contains imperfect human beings like today. And so they're very immodest because they can't conceive of how 100 years from now, someone may look at them or Nigel and Mark and say, what were you thinking? And 100 years from now, find something that we believe today to be accurate and think, no, you're, you're way off base. Similarly, we have immodest people today, though, that can't conceive that they could be wrong about something. But they also look at history in very simplistic terms. And what I mean by that is this. Um, you know, in the 1950s, uh, with due respect to John Wayne. I wouldn't, want to have, I wouldn't want to have been an indigenous person in one of his productions because they were always kind of the sidekick. They were always in you know, a supportive role. Um, it, it, you know, I think it fairly can be described as not exactly uh, friendly you know, and, and not an accurate portrayal um, you know, and somewhat even racist. But that's flipped today, where indigenous good, um, colonial era bad, um, that's simplistic too. One of the the things the British Empire had to deal with, and in British Columbia, where I'm from originally, in the mid-19th century, was slavery issues uh, among the indigenous population. So Governor James Douglas, in the mid-19th century, has to buy slaves from some First Nations to free them because, you know, it's impossible, given the smallness of the British presence of the day, to really abolish slavery in British Columbia. And that didn't really get abolished until the late 19th century. Now I bring up the indigenous slavery in British Columbia, not to pick on indigenous folk, but to simply say, slavery was a reality of human history. And um, if you simply look at history and you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, where the British did no wrong, and everybody else was you know, inferior, or the reverse today, um, that's why the British Empire analyzed and it matter. And Chris Champion does another chapter in the 1867 project as well. But you have to look at history as the potential for good and evil in each one of our ancestors and also take the good from the past. So the British gave us the rule of law, capitalism, the rights of women. These were ideas that, you know, um, can be can be lauded by anyone and should be kept, right? My background is German, but I wouldn't recommend that we take much from the Germans historically. So, look, uh, I think... The problem today is people are utopian. I think they have a very um, black and white, um, really shallow view of history, where they don't understand how to learn the right lessons from history. So I think that's what's led to some of our modern-day disputes. Let me ask you this. Do you
0: think we're having a good-faith discussion with the people who you describe as utopians, or is this actually a twisted narrative that they use in order to gain power, political power at the expense of people who they perceive to be in power at the moment?
1: Well, I mean, I think two things are driving this. I do think people have some sincere ideas and wrong ideas about how to view Canadian history and why we can't celebrate it. So as I've explained, I think they're wrong in terms of their view. Uh, but uh, but sure, uh, I mean, power, you know, uh, people in power sometimes, you know, and if you're convinced of something, you don't like to be contradicted. But that's precisely why we need to contradict them. I mean, look, the way forward, um, if, again, back to the oak tree analogy, you know, why do sun? why do, why do oak trees need sunshine? Um, because they expose flaws in the tree. If you want to, you know, if you want to prune the tree, you, you're not going to do it at 2 a.m. in the morning. You're going to do it, in, you know, the, the light of day. When there are problems in a country like Canada, the only way to correct those problems is to do some pruning in the light of free expression. And so that's uh, that's part of the book as well. That's why the first part of the 1867 project goes through cancel culture um, and some of those examples in journalism, in politics, elsewhere, mm-hmm. but also some of the core problems today where Bruce. Bruce uh, Party from Queen's University, the Toronto law, uh, the Toronto University and the the law professor at Queen's. Party argues that, you know, we've succumbed to kind of a new Marxism where everything is about power and um, there's no objective reality out there, and the Marxists thought this about economics, but it's now morphed into these other spheres, and Party does a wonderful job of saying, listen, um, the Marxist and critical theory are at the root of some of these problems. Um, where they th- where they think there's no objective reality, and that's why you can have woke folk today um, decide that you know nothing matters, nothing is concrete, all that matters is power, and that's a dangerous road to go down. If they lose power, and some actual fascist power takes power one day, they will regret uh, kind of lobbying for the look at uh, the look at all of us through only the, the power lens.
0: In the saddle today, and under the horse's heels tomorrow. Mm, yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. Now it would be very easy to make this a depressing book, no. and yet I see that at, towards the end you, you, mm. you throw out some hopeful signs. Can you just elaborate on those?
1: We do. The last third of, of the 1867 project, available on Amazon, I should probably promote that, is, um, is is looking forward. And we've got a number of authors. So we've got one author from Goa, India, an entrepreneur, uh, Grev Jaswell, says, why are you Canadians beating up yourself? You've got a great country, and here's why. And he goes into some detail. Mm-hmm. And we've got other immigrant stories, actually, in the book as well. Uh, Rima Azar, who came from Lebanon, who said, "Don't focus on identity politics because identities are unchangeable, and that's dangerous. And she saw that in Lebanon. Um, so in the last part of the book though, we do go into looking at how Canada has been successful and can be successful in the future. And oddly enough, you know who was good at understanding the why was Pierre Trudeau. For all his faults, Pierre Trudeau understood that you need to focus on the individual and he would disagree with his son's identity politics uh, fascination today. Pierre Trudeau said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that your rights precede the state. The state doesn't give you the rights. You lend them to the state to do some things, you know, collect tax and do things you think only the government can do. But you lend those rights to the state. Your rights precede the state, said Pierre Trudeau, battling ethno-nationalist separatists in 1992 in the Charlottetown Court referendum. This is where we get the quote from in the book. But the last part of the book says this, and and, uh, Van Vakachalam, a friend of mine, and I author a chapter. I author another chapter. But the basic gist of both chapters is let's not divide on identities in Canada. That's a recipe for disaster because no one can change their color, their ethnicity, where they were born. Let's unite around laudable ideas, the worth of the individual. Putting the individual at the center of law and policy, which means no discrimination pro or against or skin color on a job application or a grant from the federal government. Let's unite around those laudable ideas or the rights of women, right, which took a long time to get to in the world uh, and in many places are still not recognized. Let's unite around those laudable ideas. Let's unite around free and open markets. And, in free expression, right? Open inquiry. Those are the best best past or a flourishing future. If you if you get people to unite around, I think people are always going to be tribal, Nigel, but you don't want them to be tribal on identities. You don't want them to be tribal on you know, color, because that can't change. You want them to be tribal in a good sense and unite around good ideas, laudable ideas. If we do that, Canada has a future. If we divide based on identities, uh, then we're hooped and we become like every other country or civilization in history which, for the most part, most people in history have been tribal, and they will say, you're in the wrong group, I'm in the right group, I win, you don't, I will crush you. Um, That's tribalism, at least attached to identities. It took us, what, the Enlightenment? It took the conception of the individual in Western Judeo-Christian thought. It took uh, centuries to get to the place where we gave individuals the rights they deserve, whether they're indigenous or women or minorities. Let's not reverse on that now. So the last part of the book is really trying to remind Canadians of this laudable history you have, and in fact that that showed up in the 19th century. It wasn't like Johnny MacDonald or Wilfred Laurier or British colonialists didn't value the individual. They did. And in fact, there's a wonderful story that's not in the book, but I'll tell it. In 1858, black Californians, 30 black Californians, moved to Victoria, and they loved the place. Why? because they're treated as equals pretty quickly. They can become citizens in two years. They can run for the the city council, the school board. Uh, They can own private property. And they encountered a lot less prejudice in Victoria. In fact, they were welcomed by the archbishop, the local archbishop, and by the governor of the day, uh, James Douglas. So um, they wrote to their friends in in California and said, come up here, because this is a tolerant society. Canadians today don't know their history. They don't know that these ideas actually long predate us. predate us, And it's why Canada became the flourishing success story that it is. Because we value the individual, not perfectly. There were diseased limbs on the tree of Canada, so to speak. But those, those limbs were pruned off years ago. So let's not add bad ideas or, or cancel Canada today because of mistakes in, in, in history or the fact we didn't fully arrive at some perfect nirvana. No country's perfect. But is Canada worth cherishing? Myself and the other 19 authors would say, yes, it is.
0: I like the idea of writing a news article. Mark Milkey says Pierre Trudeau had some good ideas. This is a... News at 11. That's a keeper. Look, um, let me ask you a little bit about the Aristotle Foundation. We don't have a lot of time left, but quickly, what is the Aristotle Foundation? Who funds it? And what is the objective?
1: Well, um, I've been thinking about this for 10 years because I thought there's some issues out there that deal with kind of core, again, um, what, you know, core ideas in Western civilization and the Anglosphere in particular, freedom of expression, right, or um, empiricism, the need to actually ground yourself in what works, in science, for example, that sort of thing. Uh, I've been thinking that uh, as all the great work that other think tanks do and which I've been proud to be a part of, <clears throat> they ignored some of these cultural issues or foundational issues of, of civilizations. Um, but the short, the short way to put it is we founded the Aristotle Foundation to, to make you think. When people say Canada is institutionally racist, we publish a book saying, really? Sure about that? We want to make people think, in a good sense, and contribute to a thoughtful, reasonable society. We also want to get into some urban issues, right? The decline of cities, um, where there's some bad policies there. But um, it's funded by Free Will Contributions. Uh, We're a charitable Mm -hmm. organization, so you can go on the website, AristotleFoundation.org. you can contribute, you can find out more about the organization. But I would say, really, the the organization... um, exist, kind of fill a gap in the think tank world in Canada. And in fact, uh, you know, we want to reach 100,000 students with facts and informed history. Um, but, you know, data and science, or sorry, data and statistics don't, uh, cannot live alone. We actually want to bring in history as well, because I think when you, when you introduce some history uh, to the debate and policy debates, like I mentioned on how black Californians love Victoria in 1858 of all, of all times and places, um, that helps modify some of our Maybe harsh rhetoric today, um, you know, on various sides. That, you know, when you look in history, there's some good things that happen in history. And I think history—it's one of the things we want to use at the Aristotle Foundation to broaden the scope of what's being discussed and get people to think more. So, the Aristotle Foundation—we we created it to make people think. Last question: Of all the people you could have chosen, why Aristotle? Twenty-four hundred years ago, Greek sure. rhetorician. Why Aristotle? And he had advice not to do it. He was a dead white male who, you know, held slaves, right? Um, Well, Aristotle, because if you go back to ancient Greece, it was in ancient Athens where, at least in the Western tradition, they first started debating democracy, an ancient form of democracy. How should we govern ourselves? They also asked questions, which we want to ask today and should ask, and we do ask, consciously or unconsciously, what does a good life look like? Also, Aristotle wrote about politics, you know, and he wrote about friendship. Right? So he wrote about things that concern us all and the family. So Aristotle was an empiricist, he was thoughtful, um, and he asked the important questions. And um, much in history is not new. And I would, I would submit that a lot of the answers are not new either. So we named it after Aristotle because you know, here's a fellow millennia ago and those that surrounded him in ancient Athens that started to ask the important questions. And I think we have to ask those again today. What kind of Canada do we want? How should we live?
0: Mark, congratulations on establishing the foundation and upon this, the first production from out of your Aristotle Foundation. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming here. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for now. I will just remind you that to find out more about the Aristotle Foundation and no doubt to uh, to order your copy of the book, go to aristotlefoundation.org. All that right? That's correct. Uh, aristotlefoundation.org and thank you for watching canadian shooting sports association without the
1: cssa our gun rights would have been taken long long ago these guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in canada and more importantly educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people We've become a member it's absolutely worth every penny